Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. We are back for episode five of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kevin Hayek, all the way back in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm Dr. Sharin Tofai. And no, I have not flown out to Cleveland for this episode. However, it will be the second time in as many shows where we have had two out of three of us in the same city. Right, Kevin? Absolutely. I, I think in the last episode, you mentioned that everyone eventually ends up in California. But uh, today's guest is proving that many Sages Roads eventually lead through Cleveland. Uh, we are thrilled to have Dr. John Mellinger as our guest today, who is well known to our Sages family and is the current president-elect of the society. He recently moved to Cleveland from Springfield, Illinois, where he was the J. Roland Falsey MD Endowed Chair in Surgery, Professor and Vice Chair of the Department of Surgery at Southern Illinois University. Dr. Mellinger completed medical school at Case Western Reserve University, yay, more Cleveland, uh, followed by general surgery training at the Blodgett St. Mary's Hospitals, now Michigan State University program in Grand Rapids, Michigan. After that, he completed a surgical endoscopy fellowship at Mount Sinai Medical Center, again in Cleveland, as well as a surgical education research fellowship through Association for Surgical Education. Dr. Mellinger is a United States Air Force veteran, has had many prior academic appointments at Wright State University, Michigan State University, and the Medical College of Georgia. Well, Dr. Mellinger, today also, if I'm correct, December 1st is your first day as your role as Vice President of the American Board of Surgery, which is a big deal. We will certainly be discussing some of your work with the board on today's show. So welcome, John. Well, it's so good to be with both of you. Thank you for doing these podcasts. I've had fun being able to listen to some of your work already, with obviously some tremendous people and friends, and uh, really appreciate the chance to have the time with you. Thanks. We try and get better with each episode. We're not really <laughs> professionals. <laughs> I think our surgical was... technique is better than our podcast. You, you, you got you got a pretty good side hustle going on. <laughs> For now, we do. For now, we do. So um, you just moved to Cleveland. You know, I you know, despite what we joke about, I actually personally love Cleveland as a city. Um, I've loved it even before I knew Kevin was there. So you must be happy being back in Cleveland. Well, we we are excited to be back. We uh, it's part of a. A general repurposing, I guess I would say, we're doing in our lives, and uh, the board opportunity dovetailed into that. But it, it gets us closer, really, really like 15 minutes close to uh, our biggest nucleus of grandkids who are here on the west side of Cleveland. Oh, very nice. And uh, gets me back closer to a lot of a lot of dear friends, including through Sages, uh, many of my mentors and dear friends here, people like Jeff Ponsky and Jeff Marks. 
uh, amongst others. So, and Kevin, you're on that list too. <laughs> well, must not, be a very not, long not list. quite on that, not quite on that distinguished list, but but certainly on the uh, Cleveland list. <laughs> well, it's really a great great medical community and a, and a fun city too. Truly, truly is. Well, we're very excited to have you on today's show. Uh, you know, I was at the Sages meeting this year in 2021 in Las Vegas and your keynote speech as the Gerald Marks lecturer made a huge impression on not just me, but most of us in the meeting. We continue talking about it throughout the meeting and since then. Um, for our audience, if you haven't heard this talk, I highly recommend you find the lecture on the Sages meeting app or put it on your list of things to watch once it's available on YouTube in the next year. But getting back to our Sages Story podcast, we'd like to use our time with you to get a closer look at the stories of uh, you as one of our leaders. Perhaps you can tell us a little about your background, where did you grow up, uh, maybe highlight some of the key stops along your journey so far. Well, thanks. What a, what a gracious question to ask. Um, so I grew up, most of my childhood was actually near Cleveland. Um, my father was in ministry and uh, grew up seeing the importance of an impact of a life focused on serving other people. And that sort of combined with uh, an, an enjoyment of science um, sort of pulled me in the direction of medicine. Um, when uh, I first entered med school, I was thinking a lot about surgery. I was thinking about it uh, because I liked doing things. Uh, with my hands. I think we all share that, obviously, in, in what we do. Yeah. And, and I also um, thought at the time that I might be preparing to do uh, a lot of global work, uh, perhaps as a full-time uh, medical missionary. And surgery seemed especially versatile for that kind of work. It seemed like you could always learn a little tropical medicine on the side, but <laughs> you probably, probably couldn't learn to fix a bowel obstruction or a hernia in your spare time or with, just with a book. So that was part of what propelled me in the direction of surgery, along with just a, a joy in it as a med student. I remember my then fiance, now, now spouse, um, commenting that when I would come home quite exhausted sometimes after uh, you know an overnight shift as a student uh, on the surgery rotation, I was still incredibly happy about what I was getting to be involved with. Uh, and that, that she didn't see the same reaction when I came home much earlier uh, from some other rotations, even though they were stimulating, they, they just didn't bring that kind of joy um, and fulfillment and challenge that I, I felt in surgery. So yeah. that, that propelled me along that path. Which, um, which, which hospital did you rotate uh, through at that time? So Kevin, it's the one you're now working at. Uh, I did the, my third year clerkship at Metro Hospital here in Cleveland, and um, there were several impactful mentors there. One of them was a surgeon very near retirement age named Brown Dobbins, who was a very well-known endocrine surgeon, and um, he was very Halstedian in his approach. He didn't use thermal energy. Everything was three and four and five oh silk, depending on the size of the vessel. And just watching the meticulous nature of his dissections, I think was, and the, and the intricacies of neck anatomy was one of the things that I found really uh, enticing. Yeah. We, we have our, our conference uh, every week and his plaque is, is up in that room. So 
we'll we'll bring you by and you can uh, have some uh have some memories of of uh of s silk ties on uh, the middle thyroid vein there you go <laughs> i'd love to see that so then what then where so you you ended up uh you know obviously you had your residency and then came back to cleveland for for endoscopy and then then what are other some other highlights along your journey yeah there, i'll tell you one story um just because i think it highlights that um pedigrees and the things we sometimes envision uh, aren't always as important as other things in our lives. So when I was finishing med school, I asked my mentors then um, where I should do my residency. And um, the place that was actually on the, the highest on their list, um, particularly Jerry Shuck, who was the chair of surgery at Case at the time, was uh, the University of Washington program in Seattle. So I was fortunate to match there and was really excited. I was newlywed. We got married my fourth year of med school. And um, uh, obviously, this is before duty hour regulations. But that program in particular, it, it was there were amazing people there. Some of the faculty sitting around an M&M conference was an amazing experience because um, many of the faculty members were nationally and internationally known. Jim Carrico was the chair at the time. Um, Patch Dellinger was there. There's some names that others would recognize. Amazing faculty, but it was it was a um, very intense program. The, the attrition rate, Hugh Foy actually presented it at ASE one year was was over forty percent in the years I was there. Wow! And um, uh, about three months into my internship, I realized that I was becoming a different person. And that doesn't happen to everybody and others might've coped with it differently. But as I looked at the program, I was fearful that I was gonna do what, you know, 40% or more of the residents were doing, which was lead by sometime in the second or maybe third year and going into lifestyle specialties like radiology or anesthesia, at least as they were seen at the time. And I didn't want to do that. So without boring you with the long version of the story, we ended up transferring to the only community hospital program I had interviewed at during my interviews, which was uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, is now part of the Michigan State program there. Uh, and uh, that training program was a little bit more like I see an 80-hour program today in a pre-80-hour era. Um, I didn't have the kind of nationally known mentors there, but I had a lot of community surgeons that knew how to take really good care of patients and cared about their patients deeply and were committed to the community. And I had to um, discipline myself to fill in some of the academic holes in my own study patterns in a different way than I think I might have in Seattle, but I did have time to study, which I, I really didn't in Seattle. Um, so different people might have responded differently to all those stresses, but that's how it worked out for me. And then I, I really wanted to do pediatric surgery. So again, I'm telling all this to say that, you know, if, you, if you've had some bumps along your professional highway, um, it, it doesn't mean you're derailed. And, and uh, I didn't get into pediatric surgery. Um, and in the aftermath of that, um, a person who was a classmate of mine actually, and had lined up a fellowship with Jeff Ponsky in Cleveland, uh, the surgical endoscopy fellowship Jeff was running at that time and has for much of his career at different institutions at that time at Mount Sinai. He 
he decided to vacate the spot because he wanted to do another fellowship to try to get into a Peds fellowship himself. And so long story short, through unexpected pathways, somebody said to me, it was Dave Shears, for those of you that know Dave, who, had, who was planning to do the fellowship with, with Dr. Ponsky, said, hey, the year after me, Dr. Ponsky has a vacancy. I know you didn't get your Peds fellowship. Would you be interested in going to Cleveland and, and learning endoscopy from a world-class guy? So I didn't have anything better to do. And I called Jeff and he was really gracious. And we, we had a conversation and I ended up coming down there. And that ended up being really a career transforming uh, experience, both the content of it, but especially the chance to work with Jeff. Oh, that's a great story. That's very inspiring actually, because people think that if they're so stressed that they have to kind of choose something and if they don't make that perfect choice early on, then they're doomed. And uh, I don't know, I believe in fate. I feel like things happen for a reason. And I mean, you could have been a totally different specialty maybe and perhaps not happy or didn't wouldn't work out. Sometimes you shouldn't question, you know, these things that happen. I don't know what you think about that. No, that's a, that's a profound question, um, Sharon. Uh, and yes, I've thought about the same things. And I, I think one of the things I have learned from those experiences is I reflect back on those things, as well as in the personal areas of my life, things like meeting a spouse and so forth. Um, actually, the most important things that have happened in my life, I couldn't have engineered if I tried. And that keeps me in a place of humility and sort of appreciation of sort of the grace involved in our lives um, and that's been a good ant antidote to maybe a tendency to arrogance or other things that might creep in on surgeons so so yes i think you're right and i i think those things are important to talk about because uh, especially for our learners i think they often think oh if i don't check all these boxes in just the right sequence in the right way my life's not going to turn out and right. when most of us reflect back on our stories that we didn't check all the right boxes or if we tried to, it didn't work out that way, but we still have these wonderful opportunities that we enjoy, uh, particularly in, the, in where we live and many, much of the world doesn't have an opportunity to, to enjoy. So there's a lot to be, have gratitude over when we think about that. Yeah, I, I remember first meeting you uh, when I was a, a, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed medical student uh, in the Cleveland, uh, Christian Medical and Dental Association. And, and, I, and then I ran into you again at the Association for Surgical Education when I was a junior resident getting involved with resident as teachers uh, programs at the Cleveland Clinic. And, and since then, I've had many opportunities to pick your brain throughout the years at various national conferences over coffee. And one of the aspects about you that always stands out to me, and you, you've mentioned this, is, is your humility. Uh, and I think many people who know you would agree with that, um, that despite gaining numerous accolades and positions, you've done really an amazing job staying grounded and available, uh, especially to those of us who are, are quite junior to you and, and uh, you know, and look up to you. And I think one of the things that I've always kind of questioned about, about you when I, when I think about you is just that humility. Is it has it always been a strength, like from the beginning, or is this something that you work hard on to develop? And I think surgery and humility don't often go hand in hand. And many of, of my leaders and many of my mentors and, and even myself, I, I would say, fall into 
this category of, you know, humility is probably not the first word that comes across someone's mind when they think of, of me or, or many surgeons. So, so is that something that just, you know, was really instilled at a young age and has continued to develop, or is it something that you, you really focus on? Well, another great question and kind of you to see me as humble. I, I would say that, um, that was a conscious struggle for me. And maybe it's for good reason in some sense that surgeons struggle with this. Uh, I don't know if either of you have read, or maybe some of the listeners have read Tom Wolfe's book, The Right Stuff, about the early astronauts. They made it into a movie years ago. I'm dating yes. myself now. But but um, one of the later versions or, or re, republications, uh, you know, further editions of that book, he wrote an epilogue. And in the epilogue, um, he's reflecting on what it was like to get to know the early astronauts. And he has this amazing statement that I've used a few times in talks to surgical groups. He said, he says, basically, it's hard to think of a group of people that compare to the early astronauts in sheer unadulterated ego. The next sentence is, but surgeons come close. <laughs> I knew but surgeons had to had to be the next two words, but surgeons, yes. What he, what he elaborates is that in both those fields, the early astronauts, you know, the Chuck Yeagers and people that were, you know, breaking sound barriers, they were getting into machines they really didn't know if they were going to return to Earth or not, right? And um, they had to have almost what would otherwise be an unhealthy confidence in their ability to work themselves out of difficulty if it came, which it did, to survive psychologically and otherwise in, in the role they had. And surgery can be that way sometimes. It's probably glorified more than it is, you know, that most of us realize at some point that we're gonna spend more time fixing hernias and taking out gallbladders than closing, you know, holes in the heart or cava. But um, there are definitely times that you just have to function with situations you haven't directly encountered before and know that the principles you have learned and, and the team around you can help you succeed. If you didn't have that hope, you wouldn't be able to function. So I think, I think it's that kind of confidence a surgeon kind of needs to have to, to function. That being said, I think you're right that it becomes dysfunctional for many of us. And that often plays itself out in our relationships, either with colleagues or learners. Or sometimes our personal relationships are where the biggest brunt um, comes home. And um, so, I, you know, we're talking about sages. I remember as a young, you know, brash young resident or fellow, um, I guess I was a fellow, and then early faculty years, going to my first few sages meetings. And I found myself, you know, sitting there going, oh, I could do that. Or I, I, I think I could you know, give a talk as good as that and sort of getting in this um, self-centered mindset about there was more self-promoting. It was more about uh, achieving things myself. And I, I had to consciously work not to be there because I found that it didn't make me of much use to others. Uh, in fact, mm -hmm. it, it disrupted many things that I wanted in my personal relationships, both family, but also my colleagues. Um, and, and I think especially, you know, Sages has a passion for education. I think it might be one of the things that helps us as a society stay so open to new people, to young people, 
And I think even in a sense, maybe practice some cultural humility as a society, maybe more so than some other surgical groups do, is our focus on education keeps us, you know, Hippocratically, we're looking at the next generation and saying, what are we doing to build into them? And I think it's really hard to do that in a, in a highly arrogant spirit. So I don't know if that any of that resonates, but those are a few of the things that um, I've learned about that. And I do think it's something we as surgeons need to consider in order to show up with empathy and compassion and, and focus on others' needs um, the way we're, we need to. Yeah, that's really lovely. And I feel that in our specialty, it's so easy to fall into the trap of arrogance and ego taking over. Uh, a lot of times the stressors in our life that we deal with based on either surgeries or patients or whatever, kind of that some seems to be almost like a protective mode for many people. And definitely, I would say, you know, the prior generations of training almost promoted that. Um, so I'm curious how your humility and the way that you, you handled your career also translated to how you were with your family. If you could tell us a little bit about your family um, and how you were able to balance family life with everything else that you do, including clinical uh, care, as well as so many involvements you have nationally and uh, all the dedication you have to sages and also the other societies. Well, yeah, as you know, Sharon and, and Kevin, uh, I'm sure in your own personal relationships, um, I think uh, being whole in that area helps you show up whole at the bedside or in the trauma bay or wherever it is you function. And um, I would not have been able to do anything I had done uh, without a partner that that helped me on those fronts. So um, I'll give you a couple examples. So my wife and I will we'll celebrate our 38th anniversary wow, um, in January. And congrats. we have awesome. four kids. Well, thanks. We have four kids uh, all married and 10 grandkids with number 11 on the way, actually. Wow. Um, they're all in their child bearing and raising years. So it's a rich time of life, which is part of why we're doing what we're doing now. But um, my wife was really good when I was a young surgeon and, and maybe struggling, especially with some of these issues you're bringing up, um, about reminding me that the things that were important in my personal life could easily get pushed to the side by the sort of uh, seductive noise of my professional life. She, she didn't put it like that, but that's, that's what I saw and what she was teaching me. So an example would be, you know, it, it's very easy to spend more time at the hospital, whether you need to or not, because you you tend to get a lot of affirmation there, right? Um, good outcome from an operation is a, is a wonderful thing to experience and a thankful family, you know, you go home on cloud nine, right? And yes, we have complications and disasters and we learn humility from those things too, but she would remind me that, you know, there was only one person in the world that could be daddy to our kids, right? If I didn't show up for that job, there wasn't somebody who was going to come in and say, hey, I got, I got this for you. But I had great partners. I had other people that could do some of the stuff I could unnecessarily stay longer hours for at work. And so she just helped me with that balance in a way that I think I otherwise would have done much more poorly with, and I'm sure still didn't always do well with. 
I'll, I'll tell you one quick story that maybe illustrates how she helped me. So one day when our first child, our daughter, Heather, was probably, I don't know, six or eight, maybe nine months old, I came home as a resident um, after call and walk in the door. My wife meets me at the door and she hands me my daughter. And she says, um, this is your daughter, which I was glad to hear. Always <laughs> <laughs> good. Always good to get that confirmation. But then she said, and she needs a bath and you are her daddy and you have never given her a bath. And oh, that yeah. needs that needs to change. And I was, you know, I'd been busy. I'd been absorbed in wow. all my residency stuff. And and I started to do the, you know, what we do when we aren't sure of ourselves. I'll go, oh, no, 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 what, what, what if I, you know, and it's just like, look, it's not a big deal. There's a sponge and you lay them on it. There's you know, a little bit of warm water and the soap. They make it so it doesn't sting. And you just play with them for 15 minutes and they get clean and you have fun bonding time. You just need to do this. You're a daddy. Mm. Um, that was really that was really profound, you know. So so I can't really take take yeah. credit for that. I was I had a lot of help along the way from her and others on those things. You you had I, I that story about you, um, you know, doing the endoscopic surgery fellowship. I I didn't know that. So it was a that's that, that's a neat story. So did you finish? Was that the second year of a of a a two year fellowship? Then you took someone's spot that was supposed to be there for two years so at the time jeff's fellowship was a six-month fellowship oh, six months okay and uh but i i because the air force was giving me permission to do it before i went on to active duty they had paid my way through med school with one of the you know those scholarship programs they offer mm. and i owed them four years and they agreed to let me do the fellowship um and uh, I had a whole year. My six month slot was the second half. So the first I six see. months, I I wrote for Jeff. I got my first real academic opportunities. My residency had not been especially strong on that front. Again, as a community hospital based program, and uh, uh, Jeff was getting asked to write stuff all the time, and he already had stuff going on in his lab that is. Uh, other fellows had started and so I was able to spend my first six months doing that and I I moonlit in the ER quite a bit um, to pay the bills and then the second six months I got to do the, the endoscopy part with Jeff. I mean that that was really a unique uh, time in surgery and endoscopy specifically um, it was really kind of taking off in in many respects what was it like to be in that that atmosphere of of endoscopic surgery and and how would you compare it maybe to today's endoscopic surgery fellow well you're right there was there were some interesting things going on as i look back now endoscopic ultrasound was kind of brand new and in fact one of the things i wrote for jeff he put me in touch with some guys at the cleveland clinic that i i think mike sivak was the guy I think he was the first person in the region that was doing US. Um, so there were, that was developing Jeff himself. And Jeff, you know, everybody knows the PEG story, but Jeff is an incredibly creative, innovative thinker uh, and problem solver. And um, so he, he, a lot of the endoscopic manufacturing companies like to get stuff to Jeff early. And so he got his first video endoscope when I was his fellow. So I started the fellowship peering through one of those wow. little cable things. 
and finished it looking at a big screen with Jeff. Wow. Um, and uh, he, um, so, so the, it was an exciting time. And part of that was Jeff and his sheer excellence. I, I think that was maybe the biggest thing I took away apart from the experience and how much a surgeon could use endoscopy in providing comprehensive quality gastrointestinal care was just the experience of being around someone who had that kind of excellence and energy in what he did um, that that left a lasting impression and and one I'll just tell you one thing that Jeff said to me that I've carried with me my whole career because obviously a big part of my career has been education um, and when I was Jeff's fellow I think he was president of ASGE maybe the first or one of the first surgeons to be president of that group um, he was about to become president of Sages, or was that was a year or two later. He was running a residency. He was chair of a department. He was running this fellowship. He was he was a, a very engaged guy, and he still was a great teacher. And I said to him one day, "How do you how do you do this? Like how do you how do you keep interested in teaching and do such a good job of it while you're doing all this other stuff?" And he had this one line answer. It's, I've never forgotten this. He said, "Never stop spending time with your students." period oh, full wow. stop and that that has that has like stayed with me my whole career like if you want to be a good teacher just spend time with them you know it's like my wife handed me my daughter and tell her to give her a bat like spend time with the people who, whose lives you want to impact so that there were a number of things i took away from that experience the other thing that was really transformative for my career was jeff did his first 10 lap coleys when i was his fellow so that i didn't do a single laparoscopic case in my residency which ended in 1989 and then over the next you know couple of years following the europe and then eddie joe reddick and doug olson in this country and a few others um it started to blossom obviously well jeff went about it in a very thoughtful academic way um and did his first 10 cases and i basically ran the camera for him or maybe held the fundus or something like that and that but that got me into it with a different kind of backing than a weekend course in a way that many of my generation of surgeons did not have. And so as I went then on in my Air Force duty, I ended up being able to do the first lap Coley there and the first lap Nissen and the first lap low anterior and all these things that uh, just gave me opportunities because I'd had the chance to spend time with Jeff and, and watch him how he learned, which was obviously a help to me. And then soon it was taking over the whole field and, and taking over our sages meetings too. Um, but that was, uh, it was an exciting time. That's so, that sounds so exciting just to be at the brink of so much new activities and learning from it and just being in the middle of it. That's really awesome. Um, question I have for you is then you start your clinical career. So what were some of the clinical interests that you had and how did that kind of, how did you hone in on your uh, niche within uh, your surgical career? And then maybe also tell us about how you were able to integrate education and teaching in addition to that clinical practice that was so busy. Um, you know, the, the skill, the endoscopic skill, Jeff, it was a very good experience. We did variceal banding. We did ERCP. We did colectomy, polypectomy. Um, we did obviously lots of enteral access procedures. Um, it, I think in six months, I did over 500 scopes with him. 
and maybe 50 some were ERCPs or you know more complex therapeutic endoscopic procedures. Um, and uh, he was such a good teacher. When I went into my first job in the Air Force, um, there were a couple guys fresh out of their GI fellowships who were the gastroenterologists there, and they saw me work and. I saw them work and we worked, worked together and tried to support each other. And one of them, one of them said, you know, we don't really want surgeons doing endoscopy, which is obviously a, a, a longstanding um, point of friction in the field. Um, probably, probably all surgeons and, and have dealt with in some level. And uh, one of the younger colleagues who was fresh out of his GI fellowship at a good academic institution just said, well, you know, I kind of agree, but I, I can't say no because he's better at it than we are. Well, that was Jeff. And and what Jeff, what I think what Jeff embodied was if you're excellent at what you do, there there can be opportunities for you. You ought to pursue excellence, not political infighting. Hmm. And so I just, I just tried to be as good as I could be. I tried to imitate him. And that did over time open up. Uh, I was able to do those procedures. Um, uh, and I had great relationships with GI colleagues. I tried to be very respectful of them and of their practices and um, not steal from them, but cultivate my own ways of building a practice. And, and um, uh, that was a good lesson for me um, as far as the endoscopic part of my practice. The, the introduction to laparoscopy at that point really allowed that part of my practice also to grow. And... Uh, especially in my Air Force years um, that we did. I was I had more experience than my colleagues did. So I was able to help teach them procedures and be involved in the development of laparoscopy in the institution as a whole. And that just was a, a an unexpected gift at an early phase in my career. So that helped propel that forward. And the education piece, I, I think what I found is I just had a joy in teaching. Um, and uh, uh, Sage's story, um, probably the most profound, pithy mentoring advice I was given in my whole career was as a young faculty member, I think it was during my Air Force time, so fairly soon after fellowship, I was teaching at a Sage's residence course, uh, like, like our RAFT group uh, supports now. Um, back then, we used to do them at Ethicon in Cincinnati often, and uh, Anyway, we were doing this course and Steve Eubanks, who you probably both know and former president, Sage's president now in Orlando, was one of the other faculty members. And Steve just says to me over lunch, like, hey, you, you seem to enjoy teaching. Uh, what are you going to do with that? And I was like, well, I don't know. I just like teaching. I'm going to be try to be a good doctor. And, you know, maybe I'll be able to help somebody else become a good doctor, too, like people have done for me. And he goes, well, let me explain something to you. And this was the profound mentoring moment. And this is just on the side over lunch. He goes, um, someday you're going to be older and your body may not uh, want to do night call and long weekends. And some senior person is going to come to you and say, dude, we can hire two young people for what we're paying you as a full professor. Uh, mm -hmm. You got to keep working this hard uh, and, and you're not going to be able to do it. You need to think now about cultivating something that would make you so valuable. They will want to hire you for other reasons, or you're going to run into that wall someday. 
And unless you want to be a busy clinician until you're in your 60s and 70s, think about what that would be and start to develop it now. That was his advice. Well, for me, for me, that was education. So uh, again, it was through Sages that I, I got some of that opportunities to teach, including around nationally prominent people at a relatively young age and to be influenced by them, like, like Steve's influence on me in that conversation. I mean, again, that's when I met you was, was through the Association of Surgical Education and um, just seeing how involved you have been in, in not just SAGES, but, but other societies now, the American Board, and so many forces are, are vying for our attention. You know, how do you recommend someone who's, who's trying, and you asked Dr. Ponsky, Jeff, the same question, you know, how do you recommend someone try to juggle these responsibilities. What did you do well? And where did you see an opportunity for maybe someone to do it a little bit better next time around? Well, I'll tell you another uh, little bit self-demeaning story that's a sage's story um, about that. So one of my residents a few years ago who had had some struggles and ended up doing exceedingly well and is now on faculty at a a really prominent academic center said that one of the pieces of wisdom she had gotten from her dad was the world belongs to those who show up. And uh, so my the first committee I got appointed to with SAGES was I think like a public information or public relations committee. Eli Lerner was, was the chair. And I go to my first meeting and I felt like a fish out of water. I was like, I don't, I mean, this feels, this, this is not me. I don't know how to like, develop an image and present a thing to this public and i it just it seemed like marketing it it, and it wasn't in and i just was misinterpreting what it was about but i i didn't really feel energized i didn't want to invest uh and i and i kind of half-heartedly went through the motions now here's here's what's interesting across the table from me also fresh out of her training was a young woman whose name was joe bisky joe Show, it was interesting to me as I watched it. Joe showed up and she was she just jumped in. If they said that, well, we need this done, she, I'll I'll tackle that. Um, and she'd come back the next time and she'd have some really good ideas. And I was like, man, I don't know why she likes this stuff. I mean, I, can't they just put me on a different committee? I'm doing kind of the things many of us do as as youngsters. Well, fast forward maybe ten, probably not quite fifteen years. Joe Beisky is the first woman to be president of Sages. John Mellinger still punk, punching around at the committee level, trying to figure out where he fits, you know? So, the, so my advice would be, be a Joe and not a John. And, and whatever opportunity you're given, the world belongs to those who show up. So just invest yourself. And I think when you do that, when you, when you contribute constructively, it creates opportunity. And Sages, we, we aren't perfect. And you know, around the diversity themes, such as you mentioned, Shrin, that Pat Sill and I had the chance to talk about some in the yeah. March lecture this year. We, we've got a long, we got a lot of work to do, but but we also are started in that journey. And and I think thanks to some good leaders a few years ago, like Dan Jones and Rory Pryor, and now Aaliyah Koreshi and Hope Jackson and uh, uh, Jason Kuhn and, and our DLPD committee, uh, I think we're doing some really good things in that space and had a trajectory towards that even before some of the 
heightened awareness that, that came to us all in the past year and a half. So um, show up, participate, be a change agent, um, and, and do it with energy and, and positivity. And I think SAGES is still the kind of society that, that creates opportunity. And I got feedback that the leadership meeting uh, for SAGES, when was it, a couple of weeks ago, also just a lot of really amazing things coming up in the future of SAGES that reflect a lot of what you were discussing at the Gerald Marks lecture. My mind gets blown every time I have the privilege of sitting in a SAGES board meeting. Yeah. As they go through the committees and what they're doing and accomplishing, I, I, I've never been around a group. Um, I, within the past year, the American Board of Surgery, the council of the board had a meeting I, I got to listen into that started to approach that because there was a similar energy and vision and sense of let's craft the future and contribute to it. Uh, but I, other than that, I've never experienced anything like a SAGES board meeting and listening to the productivity of the 800 committee members that the organization has now. It's astounding. Yeah, um, that seems to be the consensus. Just an amazing board and very well run. Um, we love SAGES ourselves, but I think at every level of involvement at SAGES, it's pretty amazing and uh, something that a lot of societies can learn from. I'd like to ask you about change. So you recently moved uh, to a new institution. You will be having some new responsibilities with the American Board of Surgery. Maybe you can give us uh, some tidbits because I love your stories. Every story is excellent. I think we should make a t-shirt called a Be a Joe, Not a John. <laughs> I like that, that's good. That's a great t-shirt. I'll buy uh, one of those. It, it needs context, of course. Uh, so. Maybe you can give enlighten a little bit uh, our listeners that are contemplating moves. You know, some people want to change jobs uh, and maybe a drastic change. You know, going I, I personally went from very academic tenure track to private practice. That was a big deal. Uh, others have moved from smaller institutions to bigger, bigger institutions or a recent fellow of mine just completely left surgery and is now in education. Um, but secondary education as a, a leader in that. So really fascinating uh, to make those big changes. Maybe you can give us a little bit of insight as to what you think about it, uh, how your experience has been, and what tips do you have as you've, you've made you've a lot of different moves in your, in your career. That's a wonderful question. And yeah, we all, we all wish we could figure that one out. And I, I'll say some things probably not so profound and probably things everybody listening will know. But I, I think one thing is it's always best to move towards something and not away from something. There are sometimes situations in life, including professionally, that we should get away from. And if you're in a place where uh, there's a book I really like by Liz Wiseman called Multipliers that talks about people who elevate the games of everybody around them. And the converse is what she calls a diminisher, which is the person who sucks the energy out of everything around. If you're in a culture, and that happens in academic medicine and academic surgery sometimes, or, or it can happen in private practice too, obviously, where uh, your energy to do the wonderful work we get to do is being sucked away, it might be time to think about a change. But in general, look for something you want to move towards and not just something you want to get away from. So... Um, 
I started out like what you're doing, Sharin. I was in private practice. Um, our group, we had residents and we had uh, actually a large group of medical students. We were the biggest teaching campus for Michigan State's medical school at the time, Grand Rapids. Um, so there was plenty of teaching to be done, but it wasn't, there were almost no salaried academic faculty. Everybody was in private practice. And um, if you taught, it just took away from your bottom line, but you got the joy of teaching, right? And it, as I spent time there, I realized teaching was becoming more and more important and fulfilling to me. And in the, and the reason I left there was because the, the model there was not one where teaching was a vested value where they could support added time being spent to that, that, that would take away from clinical product. Um, and so it, it, I was in a wonderful group of surgeons, but I felt like if I wanna grow as an educator, um, I, I need to find an environment where that's a vested value. The other thing was that I had a very broad practice there. And again, that was wonderful as a young surgeon. I, you know, we, we did in-house trunk call, we did dialysis access. I would harvest kidneys sometimes at night because a couple of my partners did transplant and I did all my endoscopy stuff and, wow. and GI general surgery. But I, I decided I wanted to focus more because uh, that would make me able to teach in a more selective way, uh, uh, maybe do a higher standard of excellence in some areas as my career unfolded. So that provide, combined with an opportunity for some different mentorship which, which came in the person of Bruce McFadden, who you probably both know, and former Sages president. Bruce was moving to Georgia, wanted another person who liked surgical endoscopy, part of his team, asked if I would come there, and it dovetailed with the opportunity to get more involved, sort of in a more focused GI practice and education-oriented career. My next move then was to SIU, and that was because education had become even more important to me including opportunities to be involved with APDS and, and some of the national education groups and SIU's reputation around surgical education and the chance to work with Gary Dunnington and David Rogers. I, you, you may know them, but they, Hillary Sanfi, they were all at SIU at the time. And I was like, gosh, I get to go hang out with some really world-class educators. Reed Williams was here as, you know, assessment scientist. It was just an all-star team, this little place surrounded by cornfields. So that was, so, I guess what I'm saying by my own story is that moving in the direction of things you have increasing passion for and making choices that allow you to leverage those things in your overall sphere of activity at a higher level is, a, is for me, ended up being a good reason to make the moves. The present move um, really came to us unexpectedly. We were, we were starting to think about retirement and, and maybe beginning to plan for that maybe another year or so down the road. Um, and then this opportunity with the ABS came up, and uh, it's the project that I'll be spending the majority of my time on is uh, the, their EPA project, which is meant to go live in general surgery nationwide and all residency programs in July of 2023, uh, and has the potential to, I think, uh, really change the way we assess competence throughout residency training and to move us, uh, take steps towards a competency-based rather than a time-based training paradigm. I like to think of it as the EPA concept and, and you know, you can easily sound more, more like this is more, uh, you know, apple pie than, or 
high pie in the sky maybe is a better better um, metaphor than it is. There's lots of work to be done around faculty development, not just making it another educational flavor of the month. But if it's done well, it means that in our day-to-day -day activities, surgeons and their trainees are fully embedded in a continual habit of assessment. And I think that could move all of our teaching, all of our academics, and even our relationships professionally with our students and our colleagues in a, in a really wonderful direction. Um, so it's a chance to work on that. And it's a half-time role. So it also let me start spending some more grandparent time in an era where or a window of time where if I waited another five or 10 years, a lot of my grandchildren will be old enough, probably won't think grandpa's so cool as they do now. So, so I guess I'm as I talk about change, I'm talking about timing and leveraging the things that you find joy and, and passion for in your life or your career journey and just trying to keep turning in that direction. And, and thanks to the lesson your wife gave you with Heather, uh, the, there's no excuse about bathing the grandchildren. They'll, they'll, there you go. You got you that go. one uh, wrapped up. So, you know, I, you I, I, I'm glad you, you talked about your role. I, we were going to ask you that. We figured we looked, maybe you were reading our questions here somehow, but uh, you, you, you and I spoke a little bit about your, your role with the, as vice president of the American board. And, you know, and I, I, I the other thing that you've been involved with, and, and I want to take this to another level, because I know you've put a lot of effort into increasing access to surgery to a global population. Um, I remember sitting in on a global surgery talk at ACS in 2019 before the world shut down. And I mean, this figure just smacked me right in the face, which was that 5 billion people don't have access to safe surgery. Uh, and, you know, I think that puts everything in context when we go to our meetings and we learn about the newest tool, the newest robot and kind of recognize that vast majority of us don't, don't have that access. When I say us, I mean, you know, humans. Um, I just got back, uh, as you know, from a mission to Nigeria. And while we certainly have needs here in the US, it's always eye-opening when you, when you step into that kind of an environment, just really to see how much opportunity there is for us to learn from our colleagues, to help our colleagues, to help patients in resource poor areas. And I think specifically when considering minimally invasive surgery and endoscopy, um, what are some of the opportunities you see in the developing world as it relates to equipment, training, and collaboration? Wow, what a great question. And Kevin, you have spent more time clinically in the developing world. Shrey, maybe you have too. I haven't ever got to talk to you about that, but uh, most of my time overseas has been in teaching roles. So, um, you know, I would defer really to the other two voices on this call as maybe having some deeper insight about this than I will. But um, I think the, the need issue that you highlight is really one we don't ponder enough. The other part of that equation is the opportunity side of it that we have. I, I remember the first time I got to go to a developing setting was as a senior med student. I went to Chad for two months. And uh, I remember walking away with some conclusions very similar to what you just shared about the needs of the people there compared to um, what we have in the US, as, for example. 
but also I was struck by the fact that had I been the brightest kid born in Chad, I would never have had any of the opportunities that I had had educationally as just another kid growing up in America, right? And so um, getting back to one of your early themes around humility, you know, I, I think to ponder what our responsibility is in light of that and, and how we can um, use education as a tool to not just take care of the needs of the people, but to create sustained um, ongoing um, models for care that are based there and not based on sort of the visiting professor model of somebody from the West flies in for a couple of weeks and feels really wonderful about all they got to do and then leaves and there's no sustaining activity on the ground. Sometimes those things do almost more harm than good, maybe not in the individual lives that were helped, but in, in what they do to the local society there. Um, so I think the, the wonderful thing and, and Sage is involved in this, obviously with the global initiatives is, is using teaching as a way to bring skill sets. Uh, and that does involve equipment as you allude to it. I think the equipment piece has to be very carefully thought about because we can, and the West does this a lot in places like Africa drops in, you know, wonderful equipment, but it's not designed to resist the humidity challenges of the tropics and it's not maintained i was i was involved in a conversation re recently about endoscopy in east africa and one of the big challenges when it's not just getting a hand-me-down scope but it was what do we do when the scope breaks mm -hmm. you know we, we know in the u.s that that is often a ten thousand dollar bill or more depending on the scope uh, to get it fixed well what do you do if it's the one scope you have uh, and there's nobody around who can fix it, and you can't afford $10,000 to get it fixed. So, so I think um, there's a lot we could learn uh, from those countries about what's sustainable in the context and how can we invest the resources we have educationally, even in terms of equipment, in a way that's suited to the needs on the ground and sustainable in the environment that they'll have to be used in. Those are equations we as Westerners need to do more listening and talking in order to be intelligent about them. Um, I don't know if any of that rhymes with your recent experience in Nigeria, but that's, oh, yeah. that's probably what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, since we are the official podcast of Sages, we always love hearing our guests' story of when they first became involved with the society. So how did you become a member? I uh, think when I was a fellow um, was when I joined because of Jeff. And, um, and I think along with Jeff's influence and obviously the fact that Sages at the time was, was the place for a surgeon interested in endoscopy to find kindred spirits. I think the other thing that um, quickly became a reason for me to want to be involved society was its welcoming nature including to young people who weren't you know well-heeled academic surgeons but were young people with energy and, and a desire to to do good things and it was it was that welcoming environment along with the themes that society stood for um, which quickly became minimally invasive surgery in a broader sense than just endoscopy as, as we talked about around the time that I was just coming up through the ranks but uh, I think it was those things that attracted me. And I think I joined during the fellowship or maybe it was 
in my chief residency year to get to go to a SAGE's course that they were putting on for residents, I honestly can't remember. But it was it was certainly in that time frame. And, um, and we'll jump right on that, which uh, we, we at this point we we've touched on some inspiring and serious topics. But for this next segment, which we have affectionately called the We Are the Sages segment, we want to hear about your most fun, memorable Sages moment. We are the world. We are the Sages. We are the Sages. Sing it, everybody. We are the ones who make you bright our day, so let's start treating. Most fun and memorable Sages moment. Well, a couple things come to mind. One was uh, at one of my very early Sages meetings, they had an outing where they put us on a train and put, took us up into the Redwood Forest. I think it was when the meeting was in Monterey. Um, and oh. I just got to have dinner with Bruce McFadden and his wife. And that was really the first time we got to talk at a deeper level. And uh, there's so many people, Bruce is an example for me, obviously, but there are so many people in Sages that it is a true treasure to just get to have a cup of coffee or a meal with them. That was really memorable for me as a young person um, to just get to meet somebody like that and have this wonderful conversation. Um, I've had some wonderful times in Sages resident courses teaching, like we've, we've talked a little bit about that earlier in the conversation. And I guess I would say at this point, maybe this is just because I'm getting old and my short term memory uh, maybe is what dominates my cognitive space. But I, I really found it a memorable experience to um, be up there with Pat Silla uh, oh, yeah. for the March lecture that, yeah. uh, you know, Pat's, what she, what she shared about what they went through at Ground Zero in New York City. I mean, it just like shook your soul to think about what they went through and what um, what she was able to teach the rest of us out of it. And then to be able to share my own story from my year uh, with chairing the surgery board and what we learned together about the racism issue and, and its place in our profession, not just in our society, but in our profession. Um, and to be able to talk about that publicly, um, that was a pretty profound experience. Yeah, that was great. Well, thank you so much. I believe uh, now that we're closing, I want to thank you for spending your time with us. I love stories. Kevin and I both love stories. We spend so much time with our patients, I believe, getting their stories. And I love the Sages podcast because we get to hear your stories. And you're a fantastic storyteller. I wish we had more time to, to hear more of, the, uh, of your stories. Um, so thank you for that. I think we should end on maybe give us your final perspective on what, where are we going in surgery? What is the trend that excites you the most or that concerns you the most? Uh, that's a really great question. I, I think um, there's a couple of things I'm really excited about. Um, I think the future around themes of um, Minimally, minimally invasive surgery, even in ways we can't conceive now, the way the way the tools and enabling strategies are evolving makes it very a very exciting time to think about the future of 
doing good things for people in ways that don't harm them as much as we used to have to harm them to do things. The whole genomics um, revolution and its potential impact on how we deliver care. Um, I think what's happening in education and learning to, you know, our older, the older generation's education was often seen as a byproduct. And, but now we're, we're really at a point where I think we're starting to learn how to do it better, more efficiently, more effectively, and maybe even as part of our public trust um, in a way that really shows the public we know how to serve them well, not just we say we can. Um, so I, I think, the, and I'm thinking of things like video-based assessment uh, and, and maybe artificial intelligence, all these things are kind of the cutting edge things. So I think it's a really exciting time. I think the other thing that Sages is doing that I'm very excited about, about the future is this whole uh, theme of reimagining the profession and not just playing defensive medicine with the hardships of being a physician and a surgeon around developing resilience and but but taking the offense and saying what gives us joy and how do we leverage that and how do we collectively manage the things that challenge us in the, in the area of our joy and our devotion to our patients and to one another. Um, so I think all those things are themes that make me very excited for the next generation of surgeons and uh, watching them grow up through organizations like Ch like Sages, I think will be part of what's fun about getting old. Well, we can't thank you enough uh, for spending this, this time with us. Uh, we are excited to see you in Denver in mm -hmm. March of 2022 when you'll officially take over your year and we're excited for your upcoming presidency um, and uh, hearing more of your stories. Thanks so much, John. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin and Sharon. It's been a joy to be with you and uh, look forward to all the continued good work you're doing for Sages as well through this and other events. Thank you. And that wraps up today's episode of Sages Stories. You can view the show notes for additional information mentioned on the show. Also, please visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at Sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Tune in again next time and remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without Sages.